0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Uh, One of our listeners objected that I was a little theatrical in reading our congressional motto, so I'm now going to read it less enthusiastically. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we hit pause on our Candidates in the Constitution series to preview the upcoming term at the Supreme Court, which promises to be unlike any we've seen in years. As per tradition, the court will begin hearing cases on the first Monday in October. 31 cases have been accepted for review, fewer than half the cases that the court typically sees in one term. Uh, The court was also active over the summer, releasing orders about voting rights and transgender rights about other issues. Joining me to discuss the latest news from the high court are two of America's leading court watchers and legal advocates. John Malcolm is director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, and the Ed Gilbertson and Sherry Lindberg Gilbertson, senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. John will be here at the National Constitution Center on October 11th for a wonderful program, Trump versus Clinton, uh, the future of the Supreme Court. And Michelle Joando is Vice President for Legal Progress at the Center for American Progress. Michelle is another great friend of the Center, and her CAP colleague will join us on October 11th to debate John. John, Michelle, thank you so much for being here.
1: Pleasure to be with you.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
0: Great. Well, let us jump right in with these very interesting voting rights uh, decisions that the court issued over the summer. Uh, in August, a deadlock Supreme Court refused to revive parts of restrictive North Carolina voting rights law. The court in September refused to revive a Michigan law that barred straight ticket voting. And finally, in September, the court refused to restore parts of early voting law in Ohio during which people could register and vote in the same day. That's called Golden Week, which sounds like a delightful uh, week to experience. Um, uh, John? John? Tell us about how to make sense of these decisions and what will the future about voting rights at the court bring this term?
1: You know, I think the court is very divided on these voting cases. So a few years ago, the court in a case out of Indiana, Crawford versus Marion County, upheld a voter ID law. Uh, the composition of the court since then has changed quite a bit uh, and obviously with Justice Scalia's passing last February, uh, the court is very, very evenly divided. And so I think what you're seeing is a lot of lower courts are feeling their oats in terms of being more aggressive in uh, in striking down some of these laws. I think that they sense that perhaps there is no longer a conservative majority to uphold uh, some of these laws. Uh, and they may be right. the court has uh, has for the most part you know not jumped in as they, as they have on a lot of other controversial issues. It's a good time to be a patent lawyer or an ERISA lawyer if you want to bring your case up, you know the less controversial cases are the ones likely to be taken. Uh, so this is a time where there are a lot of you know the the uh, the challengers of these voting laws uh, are very much on the offensive, and they are prevailing not before not all the lower courts, but a number of them. Uh, And once we have a a, a full complement of justices, uh, I assume that they will take up some of these cases to clarify the law. But at the moment, uh, there there isn't a full complement of justices. So uh, lower courts are being quite aggressive in striking some of these laws down.
0: Very interesting. Michelle, do you agree with John that there's not a Supreme Court majority to uphold the laws? And, And what's the practical effect of these lower court decisions striking down the laws that I mentioned? Could they make a difference in the election?
2: Well, I think, first off, I would agree with John that we're at an interesting inflection point on the court. Um, you know, t- today today is September twenty It's been about 194 days since um, Garland, Chief Justice Garland, was nominated to the Supreme Court because of the untimely passing of Justice Scalia in early February. And so what has happened is it, it presents an opportunity for the court to consider cases um, with a different complement and also recognizing that there is this outstanding vacancy. In practical terms, um, when you look at for instance the case in Ohio, um, Golden Week was, as you mentioned, it's a one week where voters could both register to vote and vote early on the the same day. And essentially, the state argued that it was in its rights to eliminate that week, um, that it would ease the administrative burden on state and local officials. Um, however, uh, this case, Ohio Democrats in particular, highlighted that the cutbacks would place a disproportionate burden on minority voters. And what we have is kind of evidence that African American voters in the state were three times more likely to use that particular period um, for voting. And so when you talk about what are the actual effects on the ground, we know that with the elimination of a week of such, that there will be a percentage of voters, disproportionately people of color, who will not have access during that same week. I think the other thing is you create kind of voter confusion, because even as voters are looking at what's happening in Ohio, Ohio, you can also read the news in USA Today or New York Times or across the country, and you see constant updates about different voting rights lawsuits taking place across the country, whether you're in Texas, Wisconsin, or even Ohio.
0: Thank you very much for that. I think this is worth one more beat. John, what is uh, your response or the the response of uh, uh, judges who disagree with these lower court rulings to the claim that these laws place a disproportionate burden on minority voters. I, w- I want our listeners to understand the constitutional arguments for and against these laws.
1: Sure. Well, one one point that I would make is that the Constitution talks about an election day. There is no constitutional right to uh, to early voting. And in fact, there are a number of states that do not permit any early voting of any kind. So to me, Uh, The notion that Ohio, which has a very, very generous, perhaps the most generous in the country, uh, early voting regime, that cutting it back from 35 days to 29 days uh, somehow uh, makes this unconstitutional, uh, I I find passing strange. I do agree uh, that the impact of these different court rulings are going to affect different people uh, in different ways and that it could have an impact on the law, so a judge this past week, for instance, by a two-to-one—well, it wasn't a judge; it was a court of appeals decision—by two-to-one uh, stopped Ohio's efforts to purge its voting rolls of people who have been inactive for a number of election cycles, presumed to have either moved away uh, or died. Uh, and of course, in a very, very close uh, election, uh, Ohio being, you know, one of your major uh, swing states, there. Uh, that could uh, have uh, an effect on the election, and, and none of us, I think, want to go through another Bush v. Gore.
0: Um, uh, I'll, I'll refrain from saying here, uh, here, in an entirely nonpartisan spirit. <laughs> uh, Michelle, any final thoughts on the voting rights cases? Is this a five to four conservative-liberal split, or is Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence on voting rights? Complicated, and and my 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 question actually is, if if Judge Garland were confirmed, what would the configuration be on these uh, disproportionate burden voting rights cases?
2: Well, you know, I think we will obviously. I would love to see uh, Chief Justice Garland on the court, but I couldn't begin to kind of imagine what his jurisprudence or his philosophy would look like. But I think if you look at issues of both where uh, constitutional arguments are centered, for instance, in the North Carolina case earlier this summer, the Fourth Circuit identified that in that state, the state's border ID law targeted African Americans with surgical precision. Um, The governor in that state appealed um, to the Supreme Court trying to uh, allow the Injunction to move forward, and the Supreme Court split 4-4 on whether to restate the law, upholding basically by default the Fourth Circuit's injunction to prevent kind of moving forward with this omnibus uh, voting, what what many in the voting rights community have termed a voting suppression bill um, by that legislature. I think we will have to wait to see, but I think consistently, um, we shouldn't be in a position where voting rights are litigated state by state and circuit by circuit. Um, And so I would say even looking back in 2013 with um, the Shelby County decision and the change that has taken place in over 20 states across the country, now making revisions on their voting rights uh, legislation in those states is definitely a byproduct of the 2013 decision in Shelby County, and that Congress will eventually have to act on this issue so that we don't find ourselves constantly litigating issues of access um, to the ballot for people in states all across the country.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, Let's turn to the other hot-button issue that came up over the summer, and that's transgender rights. Uh, Gavin Grimm, a transgender boy, sued his school for the right to use the boys' restroom. And in, uh, we discussed that in a May 2016 uh, podcast. In August, though, the court temporarily blocked the Fourth Circuit's ruling in the Grimm case, requiring the school to allow him to use the boys' bathroom. The vote, vote was five to three, with Justice Stephen Breyer joining the more conservative justices as a courtesy. John, tell us about the Grimm case, what are the constitutional stakes, and is the court uh, likely to take up the question of transgender rights uh, later this term?
1: Sure. And actually, I would like to relate this back to something that that Michelle just said, which is that both of these opinions came out of the Fourth Circuit. Uh, The North Carolina uh, case, the district court judge, in in my view, issued an order that was over 500 pages uh, that justified North Carolina's law, but by a two-to-one a vote. The the Fourth Circuit uh, overturned that. Uh, similarly, this was a divided opinion. So, you know, elections matter. The Fourth Circuit went from being a fairly reliably conservative circuit with a majority of Republican appointees. It has now flipped. There are now ten Democratic appointees to five Republican appointees on the Fourth Circuit. Uh, and the Supreme Court has granted a stay. I think it's likely. That they will take the case as a result of that. I'm sure they'll delay it as long as possible, hoping to get a full complement of judges. I don't, there's not going to be a constitutional issue per se uh, at stake. I don't think there's going to be a couple of issues. One of them is a matter of statutory interpretation about whether things like Title IX and Title VII uh, that provide against uh, discrimination in schools that receive public funds or employment for people based on gender discrimination, whether that statute can reasonably be interpreted to include gender identification discrimination. So there's a matter of statutory interpretation, and then there's something highly technical referred to as our, that's A-U-E-R, refers to a prior Supreme Court case, our deference, that an agency is, whether an agency is due to any deference to interpretations of its own regulations implementing those statutes. It's a very, very interesting uh, statutory and, and uh, questions that are involved, obviously, on a matter that that concern people across the country uh, as a matter of social policy, and so you know, we'll see what the Supreme Court says.
0: Thank you for telling us about our deference. A U, A U R, A
1: U, A U E R,
0: A U E R. Great. Um, our deference is like our federalism, something that all of our listeners should uh, learn about. And Michelle, there was another case involving transgender rights. In August, a federal judge for for the Northern District of Texas blocked the Obama administration from enforcing new guidelines intended to expand restroom access for transgender students. The judge said that the government had not complied with federal law when it issued directives which contradict the existing legislative and regulatory text. How might this doctrine uh, that we've just learned about of our deference impact Uh, that case, and uh, how do you think uh, the court might approach the Gavin Grimm case, which it could agree to hear, according to SCOTUS blog, as early as October 14th?
2: Well, you know, I think that there are a few things at at play here as we kind of consider these issues. So, for instance, if you look at the um, Gloucester County School Board um, case, um, you know, as you know, uh, earlier this summer, with Justice Breyer's vote, temporarily blocked that order as a courtesy to the state. Um, and given its action, we know that the court is certainly going to grant cert once the case reaches the Supreme Court. So, it, in that case in particular, um, the county argues that it shouldn't have to accommodate transgender students. But much of the petition in that case really focuses on what I think is an important question about whether court should defer to an agency's interpretation of its own regulation. Um, And I think you've seen is that three of the court's most conservative members um, seem to have expressed kind of interest in whether or not increasing the power of the judiciary at the expense of the federal agencies, um, what that looks like. And it is possible that the court would take up this issue if they could secure a fourth vote. Um, I think, however, and and John alluded to this, that even if uh, the court um, does look at this opportunity to look at this issue around deference to agencies, um, in particular this kind of body of cases are very much about whether federal law can prohibit quote-unquote, sex discrimination, encompassing discrimination based on gender identity. Um, And I think earlier in the year, we saw guidance from the Department of Education and others concluding that it does, and that a regulation permitting um, gender-segregated bathrooms does not permit schools to exclude um, trans young people from the bathroom that aligns with their gender identity. So a number of, a host of issues uh, that continue to play out with, with this set of
0: cases. Thank you very much for that. Uh, let us turn now to the cases the court has agreed to hear. One of the leading ones is involves religion and access to government benefits. It's called Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia against Pauly. Uh, John, do you want to tell us about that case and what the constitutional stakes are?
1: Sure. So Missouri has a program uh, that grants you know, to nonprofits uh, so they have a program. They, they collect used tires, basically, and rather than dumping them in landfills, they recycle those tires, and then they, people can apply to get these recycled tires, which are then used basically to surface playgrounds to make them safer for children. It's a, you know, it's a great program. Trinity Lutheran Church has a daycare center, and it submitted an application under this grant program. And there is no question that their application was very, very highly rated and under any other circumstances would have received this grant. The state, however, has as a provision of its constitution something that is modeled after what's known as Blaine Amendments, which were a series of 19th century anti-Catholic laws that barred a state from providing any funds to any sectarian institution for any purpose. Uh, and because this is part of Missouri's constitution, uh, the state informed the Lutheran Church that their application was being denied. So the Lutheran Church has now they sued in state court and said by providing disfavored treatment to religious organizations, that violates the free exercise clause of the First Amendment and the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment. The lower court ruled against the church. It relied on a 2001 Supreme Court case called Locke versus Davies, in which the court said that a state could refuse to provide publicly funded uh, scholarships to students who were studying theology. In this case, you know that's a clearly a sectarian purpose. Here, it's clearly a secular purpose. And the question is really whether or not a state can erect a higher wall uh, dividing church and state than is you know, required by the federal constitution or if doing so violates the free exercise clause and the equal protection clause. I would note by the way, that the court has not scheduled this case for oral argument, even though they decided to hear this case a long time ago, which leads me to believe that they are stringing this out as long as possible until they have a full complement of justices, because this is going to be an issue that is close going to closely divide the eight that are there now.
0: Uh, very, uh, helpful and very well explained. Uh, Michelle, tell us more about the Trinity Lutheran case uh, and these Blaine amendments, uh, referring to James G. Blaine, who was derided in his time as that continental liar from the state of Maine uh, is the, I couldn't resist, is the, uh, although we should say there's no evidence that he was in fact a continental liar. A, <laughs> and, let's have a fact check on that point. Um, is the constitutionality of these Blaine amendments at stake and, and how might the court divide on this question?
2: You know, you know this. Uh, the Trinity case perhaps um, raises some of the, I think, perhaps some of the most interesting questions before the court this term. Um, and I think it's important to, to begin with this. I think in some ways uh, the question presented in this case is is based on somewhat of a flawed assumption that the government has no uh, valid establishment clause concern um, in as far as we are discussing respecting the direct payments of uh, taxpayer dollars to a church, when in fact we know that the government's provision of uh, cash aid to houses of worship does raise constitutional concerns um, and something that we all should be mindful of. Missouri, in in so many ways, could not have included Trinity Lutheran Church in the grant program without violating uh, the First Amendment because the Establishment Clause squarely prohibits the direct payment of taxpayer funds to churches and other houses of worship. Um, It's interesting, uh, one of the amicus briefs filed by a number of uh, different organizations, including the Interfaith Alliance and the Jewish Social Policy Action Network um, and the Union for Reform Judaism, looked at uh, also the court's establishment clause jurisprudence and has identified that While there are quite a few bright lines, um, in this particular instance, the court has a responsibility to reiterate that there is a historical aversion uh, to direct taxpayer fundings of houses of worship, and it's a line that we must be mindful of, um, no matter how well-meaning and amazing a program, a government program it is, and I think that kind of strict enforcement of that constitutional boundary is, is essential to maintaining what we all Recognizes a very delicate balance that the framers sought to establish in um, in protecting and singling out religion for special protection.
0: Thank you very much for that. Uh, let us turn now to the death penalty. There are important cases, including Buck versus Davis and Moore versus Texas, uh, continuing a, a debate about the death penalty in the Eighth Amendment that uh, was very much put into play by uh, the court. Uh, Last term, Um, John, what's going on in these cases?
1: Yeah, actually, I'll I'll address those in a second. I I do have to respond briefly to Michelle because, frankly, I I couldn't disagree with her more about the Establishment Clause uh, jurisprudence. When our nation was (laughs) founded, Congress appropriated money to pay chaplains, and states states had official uh, religions. I think there's no question that there are people who want to erect a higher wall. Uh, between church and state, and claim that any any breach of that violates the Establishment Clause. But the Supreme Court has held on several occasions uh, that funds given to sectarian institutions, but for purely secular purposes, don't violate the Establishment Clause. But okay, on to the death penalty. Well, there are are two cases. They they cover slightly different issues. One is really procedural. Uh, uh, let me discuss the non-procedural one first, which is the um, the Moore case. Uh, So this case involves Bobby James Moore, who was given the death penalty after being convicted in 1980 of murdering a supermarket uh, clerk. And he claims that it is unconstitutional to violate the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment to execute him because he is severely mentally disabled. Now, in 2002... The Supreme K Court, in a case Atkins versus Virginia, held that it does indeed violate the Eighth Amendment to execute a severely mentally disabled individual. However, it didn't set forth any kind of a standard as to when somebody was severely mentally disabled. And it hinted that states could devise their own standards. And in fact, in 2004, the Texas Supreme Court laid out the standard for Texas, it was modeled on what the standards of the profession were in 1992, the prevailing medical profession at the time. Uh, That standard has since changed. Uh, In 2014, in another case, Hall versus Florida, uh, the court struck down Florida's requirement that a defendant would have to show that he had an IQ score of 70 or below before he could present any evidence on intellectual disability, and Hall said no. Courts need to be more flexible, and they really ought to rely on modern diagnostic standards. So Bobby James Moore is looking at Texas and saying, you are using a standard that was frozen in time in 1992, uh, and that is no longer the prevailing medical view, and to rely on that standard uh, to put me to death violates the Eighth Amendment. The other case, uh, the Buck case, uh, involves a guy named Dwayne Edward Buck, who was convicted Uh, of murdering his girlfriend in front of her children and then separately killing another man, both in 1995, he was convicted. And during his sentencing phase, his lawyer called uh, a psychologist as an expert witness, uh, a doctor, lawyer, uh, uh, Quijano, and he testified in a manner that was really damaging to Buck. He said that because he was black and because he was male, he was more likely Uh, to be dangerous in the future. Future dangerousness is often something that weighs very heavily on the minds of jurors when deciding whether to impose the death penalty. He had testified in a similar manner in other uh, cases. On direct appeal, the Supreme Court decided not to hear this case, uh, although a number of the justices commented on how terrible it was that his own expert had said these racist things. Uh, So now you know Buck wants to raise this issue of ineffective assistance of counsel again, and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said that he was procedurally barred. And so the issue that the Supreme Court is going to decide is whether or not the Fifth Circuit issued an unduly burdensome standard that Buck would have to satisfy before he could reopen this issue.
0: Thank you for uh, uh, both of that uh, explanation. So, uh, Michelle, as as uh, John suggests and as our great uh, Supreme Court correspondent, Lyle Dennison uh, reaffirms Buck involves weighing a death sentence that may have been influenced by a racist comment by an expert called as a witness by the defense lawyer and not prosecutors. And more, uh, in Lyle's words, will continue the justice's exploration of the basic question of when a person convicted of murder has such mental incapacity that he cannot be given a death sentence. How do you see the court approaching both of these cases, and how is it part of this ongoing dialogue uh, where Justice Breyer basically called on the court to think about Reexamining the total unconstitutionality of the death penalty?
2: Well I I, I would start with um Justice Breyer has in some ways presented a challenge before the court to reconsider um, our entire death penalty jurisprudence, and I, and I hope it is a challenge that the court continues to consider. I think if you look, for instance, at uh, the case of Buck v. Davis, and while, yes, it is more of a procedural issue, I think it is grounded in both what um, Justice Sotomayor has mentioned, that at the time, even when she would be a prosecutor, that she would have reconsidered um, or looked at this case um, for prosecutorial misconduct. And I think one of the um, uh, the prevailing lines that has that has emerged from examining this case is, and it's highlighted a number of different briefs, briefs that there is a pernicious stereotype that has a demonstrable effect on our perceptions and judgments, particularly when it comes to African-Americans in this country and African-American men in particular. Um, And I think the Constitution, uh, for it is greatness, expressly forbids racial stereotypes from affecting the administration of justice. Um, And there is both an express guarantee of the right to an impartial jury and the equal protection of the laws. And we are unique as a country for having those protections written in. Um, I think the framers of the Reconstruction Amendments looked at these uh, ratified amendments after the Civil War and repeatedly acted to ensure that impartial juries would fairly apply the law regardless of race. Um, And so I think as you look at the issues um, in Buchan particularly, uh, in particular, th- that is one of the questions about kind of race-blind jury decision-making, um, and it leads to the kind of the sort of extraordinary circumstances uh, that justifies relief in that particular case. I think in the issue of uh, more, one of the things that you will also continue to find is the question of uh, simply, um, if we're looking, if we're prohibiting prohibiting the use of current medical standards on intellectual disability and using outdated standards, um, are we now in a position where we are now in violation of the Eighth Amendment? And I think, again, Justice Breyer's challenge to the court will continue to, to play out as we examine both of these cases.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, John, any responses you think are necessary on uh, the Eighth Amendment, and then please help us turn to the question of race and redistricting, uh, uh, including the Bethune Hill and the McGrory cases. Sure. Well,
1: look, I, I think that Michelle is uh, is right. I think that—I uh, don't know whether the court's going to take up Justice Breyer's suggestion that the death penalty be declared unconstitutional in all of its applications, but I certainly think that Justice Kennedy, for instance, has staked out positions on—on the on, uh, people with severe disabilities, juveniles, getting the death penalty, or even life without, without parole, uh, even though the Buck case involves a procedural question. And it, and it does make a difference that it was his own lawyer who called this expert witness and not the prosecutor. Uh, I do think that the court is very, very remiss about uh, having a trial that was so obviously potentially at least uh, infected with uh, with racial animus. And I also think that the court is clearly moving in a direction of uh, requiring the latest and greatest medical uh, standards to be used when it comes to things like evaluating mitigating evidence for the death penalty. So I I, I think that uh, that the defendants in these cases are likely to prevail. But you know, I have no crystal ball. With respect to so there are two racial gerrymandering uh, cases you just referred to the Bethune-Hill versus Virginia State Board of Elections McCrory versus Harris. One of them comes out of Virginia, uh, the other out of North Carolina. Uh, and they both involve the drawing of district lines that took place after the last census. The Virginia case involved the effort by the legislature to redraw the lines for state representatives, and there are 12 districts that are issue in that in that case. The North Carolina case involved the lines that were drawn for uh, federal congressional races. There are two districts that are at issue in that case. Uh, and the courts came out the lower courts came out differently. So Virginia's lines were upheld. Both of those, by the way, Virginia and North Carolina, at the time were submitted for preclearance to the Justice Department, and both of them were precleared. But Virginia won uh, its case in the lower court. North Carolina lost. Both of them involved challenges from voters in those districts who said that, you know, these lines were drawn Uh, So that they were unconstitutional, in that race was the predominant factor in drawing those boundaries, and these states are are caught in a great, in in somewhat of a difficult position because they're not supposed to use, per the Supreme Court's uh, directions in Reno v. Shaw, race as the predominant factor in drawing these lines. But to some extent, they have to be able to draw some districts that are have a majority. Of minority voters, so-called majority, you know, majority-minority districts, in order to comply with Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, so there's a bit of a delicate dance here. Uh, these are also cases that have not been set for oral argument. These are issues that tend to to divide the court very, very, uh, you know, they're very close cases. Uh, I don't know where the court is going to come down. I think, particularly in light of Shelby County, where there's no pre preclearance requirement, and requirement anymore, that the court may be trying to figure out a way to give the guidance to, you know, some guidance to the states so that they can avoid the prospect of getting sued no matter what it is they do, either getting sued for violating the Voting Rights Act if they don't create enough minor- majority-minority districts or getting sued for improper racial gerrymandering if they put too many minority voters in a particular district.
0: Uh, Well explained, and thank you for that. Uh, Michelle, is the court divided four to four on the question of race-based districting? Justice Kennedy had been joining the conservatives in striking down many districts created for the benefit of minorities under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and yet he surprised many observers by voting to uphold an affirmative action program for the first time in the Fisher case. Uh, Might he change his views on uh, race-based redistricting? And and how do you imagine the court would approach these cases?
2: Yeah, I I assume that... um as we continue to kind of look at what justice kennedy will do and obviously i i don't i i also don't own the crystal ball that john referenced earlier but i will say um that as we continue to examine kind of these racial gerrymandering cases um in particular that i i tend to believe that justice kennedy may be taking a different look as we look at both the effects of what these cases look like in practice, whether we're talking about in North Carolina or Virginia. Um, In particular, as we look at the McCrory uh, v. Harris case, um, there is a question of whether or not the court erred in in looking at uh, North Carolina's reliance on whether a district should be created Uh, to make sure African Americans have, quote, an equal opportunity to elect their preferred candidate of choice and whether or not that actually um, is complying with the Voting Rights Act. Um, I think that the appeal also looks at whether or not the court erred in what standard of review was used um, and is looking at what was actually – necessary for that work to occur. Um, And then I think if you continue to examine the uh, Bethune Hill versus Virginia State Board of Elections, the court continues to look at what does it mean for a district to be drawn using racial lines. And we know that this could have major impacts in future state elections um, and what that then means for either segregating or stigmatizing African-American residents in those communities.
0: Thank you very much for that. Uh, John, final words on redistricting, if you, if you like, or I'm going to ask you about uh, final cases that you're following, I think, uh, might be interesting, including those involving uh, property rights as well as insider trading.
1: Yeah, I don't think I have anything to add, uh, particularly to uh, what Michelle had to say on the redistricting cases. It's obviously a bit of a mess, and the, the landscape has now changed significantly after Shelby County, where there's no longer preclearance required. And so I, I think the court is going to have to weigh in on some of these cases and provide some direction uh, to the state so that they can go about the task of redistricting with a minimal amount of litigation in their future. Uh, so other cases that I'm—and I'm, there are a few that I'm really interested in. There's a really interesting property rights case out of Wisconsin, Murr versus Wisconsin, in which uh, some siblings inherited from their parents these two adjoining waterfront properties uh, off of Lake LaCroix in Wisconsin. Uh, At the time, the parents purchased these two properties. They were purchased separately. Uh, They developed on one of the lots, not on the other one. Uh, Now the parents have passed on, and the siblings started exploring the possibility of either developing the second lot, or selling the second lot. And they discovered that due to new zoning regulations, uh, these plots were now going to be considered one plot. Uh, The siblings challenged this in in state court, saying that this was a regulatory takings, that they had rendered this adjoining property uh, essentially unusable, and they were entitled to compensation. Uh, The lower court relied on a 1978 case the Supreme Court pin Central. That was a case that had to do with essentially Grand Central Station and air rights above Grand Central Station. The court said, no, you don't treat air rights separately. You consider the parcel as a whole. Well, this, of course, doesn't involve air rights or even mining rights. This is an adjoining property, and the question becomes whether or not the parcel as a whole doctrine applies to... Real you know real property that were bought at separate times but happened to have been you know bought by the same person um, there's also a really interesting criminal case involving insider trading uh, that salmon versus united states uh, you know that case involves essentially you know what is the the liability to for tipees in insider trading cases so there are the securities laws. There actually is no criminal statute for insider trading, but the Supreme Court has looked at securities laws that prohibit manipulative or deceptive uh, practices and has created, if you will, judge-made criminal law. Uh, and they have said that you can maintain a conviction for insider trading if the person who gave the inside information, the tipper, directly or indirectly gained. The Salmon case involves a guy who received insider information about a forthcoming transaction from his future brother-in-law, who had in turn gotten it from his own brother, uh, and he made a profit on this. You know, there's no allegation that the tipper or even the brother who passed on the tip received any money as a result of this. There's no question that if the, uh, the tippee paid a bribe to the person providing inside information, That's a crime. There's also no question, by the way, if I pass somebody on the street and I happen to overhear them because they speak very loudly and they are talking on the phone and providing inside information and I hear that and I trade on it, that's perfectly okay. So the question here is, well, what if you don't receive money? What if you just didn't hear it by accident? What if you just happen to be a close family member? There's an interesting wrinkle, actually, in this case, which is the Second Circuit in a very, very similar case a couple of years ago ruled against the government, said that a family relationship wasn't good enough. There's a district court judge in the Second Circuit, Jed Rakoff, who severely criticized that decision. The Salmon case comes out of the Ninth Circuit, and lo and behold, Judge Rakoff was sitting by designation on the Ninth Circuit and wrote the majority opinion. So there's now this split between the Ninth Circuit and the Second Circuit on the extent of Tipi liability in insider trading cases.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, Michelle, uh, are there any cases that you are watching that are on the docket or that the court might be putting on the docket uh, for later this year?
2: Yeah, I think there there are two cases um, in particular that, that I will be paying close attention to. One is the Wells Fargo versus City of Miami case, which presents a few interesting questions, um, it, mostly about the standing and the ability of cities and their actions to protect or defend communities of color. So in 2013, the City of Miami essentially filed a suit against Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup, for um, engaging in predatory lending to m- minority borrowers. Um, in in the suit, the city alleged that essentially that the lenders were conducting reverse redlining, um, leading to kind of foreclosures, uh, lower property uh, tax collections, and increased costs to the city to deal with the resulting property value loss and community blight. Um, the city then... Uh, accused the banks of disproportionately placing vulnerable, underserved minority borrowers in loans that they cannot afford, and then when the borrower who previously received a predatory loan sought to refinance the loan, the bank refused to extend credit at all or on terms equal to those offered when refinancing similar loans to white borrowers. Um, and so the court isn't considering the actual merits of the case, but is looking at the issue of whether or not a city has the standing to sue a mortgage lender or a housing operator under the Fair Housing Act uh, for discriminatory lending practices towards minority communities. Um, the 11th Circuit in that case actually upheld the city's ability to file suit under the FHA and denied the bank's en banc review. And so I think in in this, uh, what we find at stake in this case is when banks kind of engage in the discriminatory conduct, uh, that they're are as Miami has stated in its complaint, there are real non-economic and economic consequences for the cities in which those properties exist, um, and that there should be some culpability for the banks that are responsible for those consequences. So that's definitely a case that I'll be watching. Um, and then, like many others around town, uh, tomorrow many of us will be looking or heading to the DC Circuit itself. Uh, the DC Circuit is scheduled to hear or arguments in the challenge to the Obama administration's Clean Power Plan, Um, if that ruling is appealed to the Supreme Court, um, it is very possible and likely that the court could consider it as early as late winter, um, spring of 2017. Um, I think for uh, some of your listeners, you know, the the president and his supporters, uh, many in the environmental community, and many states across the country uh, look at the Constitution and in, and include in there inherently a, an ability to regulate interstate commerce, um, and that they have to have the authority to regulate CO2 emissions that float across borders and threaten um, the globe with uh, climate. Disruption. Um, And then you have a huge array of people supporting that belief. Um, Tech giants, all the way from Google and Microsoft and Amazon, have actually filed briefs supporting the government's position um, and supporting kind of movement towards things like renewable electricity. Um, The opponents, which are mostly about 28 Republican states, um, members of the uh, energy kind of coal community, say that essentially the 10th. amendment to the Constitution doesn't allow the federal government um, to commandeer such a large portion of their economies. And so you find yourself um, in this situation uh, where you're examining both positions. So we shall see or arguments are extensive on tomorrow, I think three plus hours. Um, so may have to bring us back to have that conversation. What do you think, John?
0: (laughs) Well, I I would love to have uh, both of you back for a a podcast on that and other cases, but it's time for closing arguments. So, John, I think I will ask you, use whatever crystal ball you have. Imagine it is June 2017. Uh, Of course, we may or may not have a justice confirmed, but uh, what are uh, some additional cases, one or two areas uh, that uh, you think the court may agree to hear, and, and what might the results be for America?
1: Oh, gosh. I, I think what, <laughs> what cases the court agrees to hear is going to be completely dependent on, uh, on who the president is who's going to be nominating the Scalia uh, replacement. Uh, so we're a very, very closely divided country. It's a very, very closely divided uh, court on a number of issues uh, that the country cares a lot about. You know, religious liberty, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment. Uh, you could go down listed the death penalty, which Michelle uh, talked about, and I have no idea who the next justice is going to to be. Uh, a lot of it will depend on who is controlling the Senate and whether we have a President Clinton or a President Trump. Uh, and once that logjam is uh, is cleared, uh, I think it'll be full steam ahead.
0: Judiciously stated. Michelle, your final thoughts about cases the court might hear and what we can expect in this uh, 2017 uh, term.
2: I I would agree. I think we find ourselves at an interesting inflection point in history. as I stated, this is kind of the longest period um, in history um, that we've ever waited for consideration of the Supreme Court justice. And I think that weighs heavily on the minds and hearts of those sitting on the uh, Supreme Court right now. I think what's also interesting to note is that more people are paying attention to the Supreme Court. I think rightly or wrongly, right now than ever in recent history. Um, You know, here at the Center for American Progress, we uh, put out a poll earlier in the year, um, and 65% of voters across the country, both Republican, Democrat, and Independents, um, say that the Supreme Court is very important or fairly important, um, which is significantly higher than the numbers in 2012 or or 2008. Um, And I think, you know the American people are looking at the vacancy. They want us to move forward. They, at the very least, they would like us to have hearings um, and then decide on an effort up or down confirmation vote for Chief Justice Garland. And so I think that uh, kind of weighs heavily in the backdrop about what we will see before the court next term. Um, and as we continue to move forward, and we'll all be ready in October <laughs> to see what happens next.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Michelle Giwando and John Malcolm, for an illuminating, civil, and substantive discussion of the next Supreme Court term. We, the people listeners, uh, we're going on the road and will be in the next episode at th- broadcasting from the University of California at Berkeley, where Daniel Farber of Berkeley and Barry McDonald of Pepperdine, both nominated by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, will discuss the Clinton Court versus the Trump Court and what the future might bring. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to once again say, Michelle, John, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's my pleasure.
2: Thank you again.
0: Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at Constitution CTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. For me, Jay Rosen, at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of the Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, this is the serious part, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and we rely on the generosity and enthusiasm and passion for the Constitution of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.